so Amy Donovan Blondell is a visiting research fellow at the Department of International Development here at Oxford. Um, she works at the intersection of the social sciences, geography, public health, and the documentary arts, um, conducting participatory research projects with highly mobile, homeless young people in the US context. Um, in the course of the Youth Trek study, her most recent NIH-funded research, um, Amy used mobile phones and geospatial technologies, including GPS and internet-based technologies, to document the lives of homeless young people as they travelled. Um, at present, she is completing a book on the mobility, healthcare, housing, employment, and income-generating activities of homeless young people as they travel across county, state, and sometimes national Thanks, Amy. Thank you, Natalia. Okay. I'm excited to be here. I'm I presented some of this material at IGS seminar, uh, I don't know, International Gender Studies seminar. I don't know if any of you guys were there. No? You were. So you, there's going to be some overlap. Forgive me. Okay? Um, it's not entirely the same, but there we go. Um, I'll let you guys read this, but I'll read it quickly as we go. All runaways must be viewed as illegal aliens, persons without status in their own land. They may find themselves adrift for family or personal reasons, yet they must also face their illegal status. Some want to return to their homeland, others may not. Irrespective of such preferences, runaways are forced into an underground status because of their legal, illegal position in our society. A variety of alternative services is needed, similar to those developed in other countries where hostels and wayside services for the traveler exist to reduce the hazards of travel and survival for youngsters away from home. Such a variety of legitimate alternative services could be provided if runaway status were decriminalized. At the root of this criminalization of youth, okay. Um, at the root of this criminalization of youth who are on their own, as Is Miller describes it, a social structural ambivalence between control and assistance, between detention and support, between captivity and freedom, which underscores every aspect of homeless youth relationship to the formal agencies of society. She, um, this is a huge problem, and I, I bring this up because I, I, I'm not going to talk a lot about policy ramifications, but I do think it's really important that um, the, the history of treating children as chattel, the history of containment of youth is a huge, huge problem. And it's, it's, it's fundamental to most policy problems, actually. And um, so I just want to cue that. Um, I'm going to go, I'm not going to spend time on these slides. These are slides that tell you a little bit about my about my process, you guys can read. I'm not going to read out loud. So there you go. These are three projects I did previous to the Youth Trek project. Urban Scape, which is a photography project. Refuse and Refuge, Youth at the Edge of Consumer Society, which was a museum exhibition with homeless young people. And the Labor Memoir Project, a year-long writing project in which young people wrote about their work experiences and income-generating activities. And I got some little grants to help me out with that sometimes. This project, um, I'm going to be talking from a lot of my projects today, but one of them was the Utrecht Project, and that's the formal title. These are all the folks who worked on it, lots and lots of folks. And I really appreciate all their help. This is a mixed method study, um, so using lots of routes of information, like your moving image. Um, there aren't going to be too many moving images, but there are photographic images, photo essays, uh, geo-narratives, uh, quantitative stuff like uh, surveys and um, questionnaires, short ones and long ones. Cartographic methods, young people making maps, making their own maps, designing their own maps. And geographic methods, um, where young people sending me GPS um, coordinates so that we can track 
and create um, trace maps of their travel routes. I uh, developed a method in the study called travelogging, which brings these um, modes together. And here's a little more detailed rendering of what was an iterative process where, you know, um, I might do an interview with an uh, oral history with a young person in the beginning, and then many moons later, I'm talking to them two years later on the phone, because I use mobile phones. So I'll be talking to them two years later on the phone, making reference to that first interview. So it's a uh, process in which things are cumulative and iterative, and relational, fundamentally. Of course. Um, seeking a refuge or sanctuary space, this is a... This is a squat that existed uh, within the, ba the bounds of a university, San Francisco State University, a very large university. It would sort of like be inside of Oxford Brooks, I mean, in terms of size. And it was owned by the, the high school, and they closed it because of asbestos uh, damage. And so there was, it was a working squat literally within this big university. Now it's a soccer field. If you can imagine this, for 10 years, from 2002 to 2012, there were people living inside this compound, inside of university walls. Very trippy. Here's the way, um, okay. To enter, place puppy on the trash can. Climb on top of the trash can. Grab the puppy and hoist him up onto the roof. Climb onto the top of the fence. Climb onto the roof. Go over the roof to the other side of the building. Climb onto the tree directly on the other side of the building. Grab the puppy and place him in the, on the chair directly below the tree. Climb down to the ground. You've made your way to the, to the space. So I used to drop her off, the young woman who wrote that, right here next to this building, and then she would jump over that wall with the dog, like, just like you, we just heard, okay? But imagine if there's a fire, which it had been a fire, because look at her mind map. Old shed was burned. There's a fire here, that's how the person has to get out. So we're talking about a fire hazard, we're talking, she used to spray, use a spray bottle um, for water um, in, before she would sweep to try to bring the, down the asbestos dust. So doing these things for harm reduction, doing these things for survival, informed by ideas of how to improve those chances and having to live with some pretty serious um, hardships. And again, in, in one of the wealthiest cities and one of the wealthiest countries in the world. So... Um, okay. We hopefully all have a, a very different idea about what this means and what, what we have in capacity now um, in the world that we are working hard to change for people who are in wheelchairs and who are um, physically challenged. So I want you to, to put that away, though, and just look at this because this is her use of that, not our use of that. Okay? Okay. The youth who went in and out... I'm just going to show you another. The youth who went in and out of this small bookstore, which is Borders Books, um, see the purple tracks going in and out? Those are her, her tracks. Going in to read books, <laughs> mostly on gender and psychology, her favorites. This homeless youth, she said, would spend up to 10 hours in this bookstore. She said she could bring her tea bag and get free water. She could go in the bathroom and wash up. Her dog could hang. She would meet people. She would meet middle-aged women who thought she was very articulate and couldn't believe she was homeless. Sometimes they gave her money. Um, she meets students. Uh, so this is a sanctuary space. I think we know in many countries the libraries and the bookstores are sanctuary spaces. And historically, for actually queer people, for example, the library has been, and for many people, has been a sanctuary space. It's really fascinating to me. So, the youth, okay. 
on, uh, she made another mind map, not the one of the squat, but a different one about her housing and healthcare history, in which she put this symbol. She could pick different single symbols in making a mind map. So she picked this wheelchair symbol and she put it on a very large residential facility. And this is what she wrote, um, the caption she wrote for the um, residential facility. This place completely handicapped me in every way. They capped my achievements. I couldn't get very far there. They would hinder my ability to do anything great. I was on too many drugs, psychotropic medications, lithium, Seroquel, Depakote. I had no choices. This is the most miserable freaking period of my life, 11 to 14. I lived in several of the houses. When I returned to visit, I felt bad that the girls were still there. They were trapped. They put me in remedial classes when I was above grade level, in remedial summer school when I didn't need it, in order to give staff a break. There wasn't one day that went by when I didn't think I wanted to kill myself. That's what she wrote. When she uh, left, she ran away to a beach uh, community and lived in a parking garage with her street family. She said she had never been happier. There she hung out a lot in alternative bookstores where she said she could read psychology books. And they never bothered her about buying anything. Although she said that when she did get money, she would buy things there. In San Francisco, she often went to libraries and to Borders Books, which no longer exist because they closed it down. Okay, I already told you about that. I'll move on. Um, I'm not going to spend time, too much time on this, but um, one of the things that my research has shown me for the last, you know, 10, 20 years is that um, homeless young people are working in lots of different economies. They may have this job and that job and the other job, as many of us do in the academy, right? <laughs> so overlap there. Um, so we're working in informal economies. They're working in formal economies. They're doing exchange. I'll get room and board in exchange for, right? Um, we call it the transactional economy. So they're doing lots of stuff, and they're, whether they're from Mexico and Central America and they're undocumented, having challenges all their own, or whether they're um, citizen, citizen youth, they're often working in similar economies because citizen youth are um, often living as fugitives because they don't want people to know their whereabouts or their names. So there's a certain off-the-gridness that both are sharing, albeit not entirely the same, right? I'm not making a total... This is something I've just come up with not long ago which I'm trying to chart different jobs that young people and income-generating activities that different young people have told me that they do. And, um, and I'm putting them on this sort of labor continuum. David Eltis, a, a historian of, says, you know, since abolition, there's this concept of slave and free. And while we're very clear on what, what those things might mean, there, there are um, elements of coercion in all jobs, and there are elements of freedom as well. And so trying to think outside the box, a lot of people think, oh, underground economy, that job's always that. I'm trying to think, you know, not always. So it's complicated. Um, so there are many kinds of jobs written down here. Just kind of try to cram it in here to give you an idea. Okay. And I've already told you that. Okay, this, these are tracks over a six-month period. So as you see, the lines connect the dots. The dots are the actual transmission of GPS and the lines are were um, drawn by Kevin Coy, who works in the geospatial lab at UC Berkeley, and he was a consultant on this project, and he helped by connecting the dots and putting on this nice satellite image. But in the same six months, I went from here, San Francisco, to LA by plane and back, and these same people traveled across the country, hitchhiking, freight hopping, and walking. So this is an amazing amount of space. I don't know if you guys know the 
how big the United States is, but then I probably shouldn't presume it. But I mean, this is probably like, you know, when you're, you're not talking just about a straight line, this might be like, this green track might be at least 5,000 miles, which is, I don't know, what, 8,000 kilometers, something? A lot. <laughs> okay. Um, talking a little bit about gender here, so um, what specific challenges exist for young women riding the rails? And, yeah. Okay. Okay. What propels personal choice and how decisions get made while traveling is also the subject of, of a photo, um, the photo essay, Still Sleeping, which I can show you. There, that's Still Sleeping. Um, the photo essay takes the form of a travel narrative in which Hero explains, Hero is the name I've given her, explains that when she was preparing to leave Georgia, a male friend requested that she not travel alone, but instead travel with one of his male friends for protection. Although she didn't particularly like this friend, and, his traveling, and in traveling together found him to be a manipulative person, she compromised her true wishes and continued traveling with him because of the promise she made to the friend back in Georgia. She also acknowledged that she continued traveling with him because of the dangers of traveling alone as a woman. And we're talking about freight hopping as a mode of transportation, which is already really dangerous, you know. In her photo essay, Hero describes some of the ways that gender roles and gendered inequalities affected life on the road. She explained that females are less likely than males to get arrested. She also stated that when flying signs with a guy, you know, hold up a sign, if the girl holds the sign, people are less off likely to offer them kickdowns or contributions because the guy is supposed to be taking care of her. On the other hand, when flying signs separately, girls receive more kickdowns. People are very responsive to girls and puppies. While females receive more contributions from passers-by, they're also harassed and sometimes preyed upon. He reported that women send, sell, seldom ride rails on, the, on their own. I've, she, she, said, she writes, I've traveled alone, and it was really unnerving sometimes. They'd, seen, they'd see a lost girl. This young woman is 18 at the time she said this. They'd see a lost girl and wonder, what is she doing? People think they can take advantage of you when you're alone. The girls always have boyfriends on the road, but there are occasions when they don't have boyfriends with them. I traveled with two girls from Chicago to Ohio. They were a couple. When Hero and her traveling companion reached Baltimore, she became even more frustrated with him. Uh, when he pursued a romantic involvement with the girl in the flag, uh, who, with whom she had a mutual crush. I saw this girl, I said, she's really cute. I was trying to think of how to talk to her, and then she came up to me and she gave me a present. So it wasn't just me who was interested in her. She's the one who came up to me. She invited me to go to Thailand with her. I was trying to figure out a way to go, but I had a dog, and I didn't have a passport, and I didn't have any money. And still sleeping, the girl with whom Hero has a crush is sleeping on the floor amongst a heap of bedding and back, backpacks. She's curled up in the American flag. So, in um, okay, this picture, these, this, these are two, this picture, on the same day that this picture was taken, she took another picture, which I'm not showing you because of, maybe because of identity, although I have permission, her permission to use it. But um, it's a picture of her kissing her boyfriend um, in this boxcar, and it's on the same day going through um, the Sierra Nevadas. Um, in the narratives of train riders, a recurrent theme is that of freedom, a spirit which is reflected in one of Hero's earlier photos entitled, Most Romantic Ride Ever. In this self-portrait, Hero shares a kiss in an open boxcar with a young man who is her romantic partner. In the background is a gorgeous mountain scene in the Sierra Nevadas. 
the, still, the title Still Sleeping contrasts sharply with the most, most romantic ride ever. It attests to the compromises made in a world where gender-based violence is normative and must constantly be factored into decision-making, and where gendered privileges like being taken care of comes at the cost of not, not being taken seriously, condescension, disrespect, and sometimes danger. The backstory for Still Sleeping highlights the influence of gender dynamics and class differences on personal trajectories of love and travel. And Still Sleeping, not only is international travel a desire deferred, but the relationship between two women never fully awakens, obviously inspired by the dream deferred by Langston Hughes. Uh, in the survey completed by the participants in the small pilot study, four, the four young women responded that in terms of sexual interest, they were equally interested in female partners, male partners, and genderqueer partners with a mix of male and female characteristics. However, in practice, they reported that it was predominantly males with whom they were sexual partners. Lesbian and bisexual identified formerly homeless youth have stated that it just wasn't safe for them to be out on the streets. So, that's um, this, this piece here, this picture, um, this picture here is the one we're going to talk about. This is called Nails in His Foot. And um, he and I were trying to hop out of Portland, that means hop on a train, for a couple of days. I'm not comfortable getting on a train while it's moving, especially with the dog, and he was built like a superhero. This train came rolling around the bend. He got excited, so I called in the train. They used the phones to call in to find out where the train was going, which destination it was going. Every car on the train called in with different info, so with that knowledge, I knew the train was going east. I hate to say this, but I still don't understand how she knows that, but that's because I'm, I'm directionally impaired. I told him that wasn't our train, but he insisted we get on it. We jumped on a gondola, it's a particular type of train, which is difficult to get into, actually, um, which, while moving, is really hard, on top of it with a dog. So we're on the train, and he looks up, and he looks up realizing we're headed the wrong way. I was furious. Now he's telling me I need to get off the damn train and the speed is kicking up. We start throwing our packs off and I try to help with the dog. I'm standing on the last rung of the ladder and the speed is way faster than I'm comfortable with. I jumped off, bruising and scraping my knees. I look behind and he seemed to be in pain. I'm yelling at him, but I realize he can't walk. I look down and there are two nails sticking out of his shoe. What made me even more mad is that I told him, even before we decided to leave, that he shouldn't get those shoes in case he steps on nails or glass. But alas, here I was, dragging him, the dog, in our packs to the highway to get help. And so she took that picture of nails into his foot. Um, I'm just going to quickly say something, which is during this project, two young women got pregnant. Uh, and both of them wanted to, get, to terminate their pregnancies and have an abortion. But only one of them, one of them was in the state of California. The other one was um, in, um, in Florida. And the one who went to get her abortion in Florida had had to like, busk, panhandle, borrow money to get the $300 together to get the abortion. She got there and he said it's too late and she had to have an $800 abortion. And, this, and there, was no, there was no state funding in the state of Florida. So she wasn't able to get the abortion. She said, and then because of the new laws in the state of Florida, she was having to, had to look at the, the ultrasound. You're, you're forced, yeah, to look at the ultrasound. So she said, oh, and there she was, my little daughter. But it was like, she said, but really it wasn't the ultrasound that made my decision. It was like, thinking, how am I going to get $800? And so she has a child today. She's actually doing really well. Um, and she's got her cosmetology license. She just makes beautiful things on Facebook. So, um, 
Yeah, the other young woman was in California and got emergency Medicare and got her abortion. It was a good experience, and she's not a mom today. And, I mean, you know, she's actually, that young woman is, is still homeless. Um, this is called Mountain. This was taken at the same time. Okay. Um, this is a poem by Essex Hemphill. I want to court, court across the race, class attitudes, but love is a dangerous thing in this small town. I understand. I always I feel like Oxford is a really small town. <laughs> if you guys are free here, fine. Okay. Um, this is a painting uh, called "Fuck You Faggot" um, by David Wanarovich. Uh, it's he's he's many years dead from AIDS, but he was a street kid before he became a famous artist. And he, this is these are pictures taken from the um, piers in the West Village in New York. And I love how it's juxtaposed with this gorgeous image of this emergent um, geographical body. Um, Darlene, an African-American transgender youth, left her Jehovah's Witness family in Kansas City, Kansas, when she was 14. When she arrived in New York City at 16, she and her best friend Billy went to Covenant House looking for shelter. The following description is taken from an oral history, which I did with her when she was 19. She's, and this is her speaking. I'm sitting in the lobby, and my best friend is sitting in the lobby, and this woman comes up to me and calls me into her office, along with two other counselors who were obviously talking about me before I came in and everything, and they go, um, we know about you, and that's just not allowed here. That lifestyle is just not allowed in this place. This is Covenant House. This is a Catholic organization, and we don't approve of your lifestyle. If you really want help from us, then you're going to have to do away with all the makeup of the sorts. These people turned me away, and so I said, fine, who needs you? And I left with my best friend and gave up a place to stay because... You know, they wouldn't accept me for who I was. And they went actually to the piers, which is a really fun but also dangerous place where, you know, you can make money and have sex and have fun. Uh, it's been torn down and since then, all over many protests. Eventually I decided that Covenant House was the best thing for me. I went and I wanted to try to um, make some sort of life for myself in New York City. So I go back and I swallow my pride and I sacrifice my makeup and all, and I go in there and I abide by the rules. Ha, ha, ha. But of course, I'm a little sneaky and I wore a little makeup here and there to get me by to where I didn't feel like I was totally giving it into their little bullshit. It's just amazing how you can bring out people's true colors, you know, just by exposing them to what, what they resent most, you know, just kind of shoving it in their face. And that's what I was. I was like, accept me, accept me, because I'm not going anywhere. You know, at first I was intimidated by this place because they didn't want me. But, you know, I forced myself upon them and I made them love me and they did. I swear I got along with every person in there. It makes me proud to be who I am. Okay. Um, this poem describes the cost of living underground, what happens when people, including youth, are driven underground by discrimination, criminal, criminalization, and persecution. In her essay, The Evidence of Experience, feminist historian Joan Scott writes that seeing enables the writer Samuel Delaney to comprehend the relationship between his personal activities and politics. The first direct sense of political power comes from the apprehension of masked bodies. Scott describes how groups are often politicized when they see themselves en masse. Sometimes a group of people understands themselves as a collectivity when, they, when they're congregating for celebration, and sometimes a group identity is galvanized when they are targeted and persecuted. In his memoir, The Motion of Light and Water, Sex and Science Fiction Writing in the East Village, about which Scott is, Joan Scott is writing, Delaney described his experience in the West Village Piers, again, in that same location, um, in New York City, realizing, um, he explains that the police came 
And then all these gay men who were like having sex in there, like which was illegal, which was illegal at the time, ran out <laughs> across the road, and they said, "Oh my God, we realized we're not like each isolated perverts. We were like a whole group of perverts." <laughs> and so, like, just appreciating, you know, the way in which before there's a movement, you don't have a sense of yourself. Um, in the foregoing example, also some of the embodied ways that homeless young people depict the geographies of their lives. Finally, I'll show, as in Delaney's memoir, how they come to understand themselves as a group. And when they analyze their collective experience with sugar daddies in the gay uh, Castro district of San Francisco in the context of the Labor Memoir Project writing group, this was informed by a political struggle they were part of to open a homeless youth shelter, an LGBTQQ, and two-spirit youth, uh, for, for two youth and their allies. In the struggle, youth and their allies were on one side, and some sugar daddies who were property and business owners were on the other. This report from the gay, gay and trans from gay and transgender youth. The earlier report from the train girls. Um, yeah, anyway, talking about pre being preyed on. I don't want to spend too much time, but I just want to show you the images. This image was created by a young man who was 18 and he had gotten a job in Starbucks. I think you can see the coffee cup. And he made some friends there and they helped him get some housing. But he was 18 so he could work full time, unlike young people who, who are homeless and run away. They can't. And um, this is the Castro. So Castro's a gay neighborhood like, you know, Soho or Chelsea or any of these neighborhoods. And, it's, and a lot of kids go there because they're like, I'm going to go to the gay neighborhood, the summer of love. And then they get there and they're homeless kids and it, it, it doesn't really work out so well for them. It's very expensive and there's a lot of classism in the gay community, unfortunately. And so he, he says these are the uncared for masses. And he sort of made it like a game thing where they're going down this slide, do you see? And they get spit out at the end and he said, you know, that he made it, but, you know, many people didn't. And then he, there's uh, San Francisco, the Golden Gate Bridge is there somewhere, I forget. Um, and the, um, these are, this is called the Donut Church, this is Dolores Park. So these are like beatific elements of the landscape that are hospitable, and this is obviously a very treacherous uh, road. So he made this, I'm telling you, in five minutes. You can believe it. And I said, just make a map of your world. And that's what he came up with. It's amazing. Another um, young person made this map. This is another 18-year-old young man also. And you'll notice that it's a body. You see the nipples and the heart, heart's and all. That's right. And then this is a body, like the torso and the legs. Can you see that? Mm -hmm. And it's also the state of California. So this is the shape of the state of California, which, for those who don't know, I, I added somewhere. There. See? You can kind of see. Okay. And uh, this is, he said, this is Mr. Ugly who travels everywhere with him. I love, um, he's moved a lot from place to place. And, and I like how, so this is, this is the, so I said, draw the place you're in. And the place you're in is a lot of places, and it's California, and it's his body. It's quite beautiful. Sense an embodied sense of geography. Um, Speaking of which, there were two homeless, when I first started working with homeless youth in San Francisco, there were two young people, uh, trans girls, from Navajo Re Reservation. And they said they, didn't, they left the reservation because they didn't want to bring shame on their parents. But that's, of course, a very sad fact because there's an honored place for, quote unquote, what the French called the Bradash, but like for trans women in the Navajo community traditionally, and obviously maybe not so much now. It's kind of a sad fact. This is about prostitution. I just wanted to say a little bit about that. Um, this came from the San Francisco Task Force on Prostitution, and you can read it 
I'm 18 years old, and I'm an outreach worker and peer educator at Street Survival Project. I thought that being in San Francisco, I would be able to come out about liking girls, but that wasn't the case. There was very much limitation. Aside from all the other stigmatism, there was also being underage, not being able to get a job because you have to have your parents' signature on the permit saying you're in school and living with your folks, and I didn't have that. I couldn't get a job, and I couldn't get a place. I was just stuck, and that's how it is. And that's how it is uh, right now for a lot of youth who are on their own. It's fine if you don't want to get off the street, but having the choice is a lot harder if you can't, if you can legally can't get a job without having your family involved in it. So I was living on the streets in the hate Ashford district and getting proposition when I decided to do it because I, it didn't feel like there was any other choice at the time. I didn't mind it that much. It was kind of like the guys at school and everything. So it wasn't that big of a deal. I was just living on the sidewalk, and once in a while I would meet somebody, but for the most part I was on my own as a kid. When I would go to these appointments for checkups, I would look for something more, and I would get yelled at for what I was doing, more so than an adult. It's like, along with all these other things that are supposed to be morally wrong, being a youth and even having sex at all is such a taboo. A lot of things that bothered me when I started meeting people was that there was a lot of guys who didn't consider themselves to be bisexual or gay or questioning, but they were. Once in a while, when they needed money, doing survival sex, meaning with male clients. And they wouldn't go to a clinic and say, yeah, I'm having sex with guys too. They would say, no, I'm straight. So, most of the time, the doctors wouldn't educate them on how STDs and HIV takes place with a man and a man, a man, and a man because they didn't say they were having sex with men. It feels like a lot of youth programs out there send you back to your mom and dad. They seem to presume it's better with your family than it is on the streets. And a lot of times, it's not better. A lot of times, it's worse what's going on in your family. That is, uh, no matter what you're doing. So, uh, Nelly, uh, the last thing I wanted to share was from the effort for homeless youth to make. Um, so there was a big effort for. It was a big struggle on the part of straight, gay, lots of people, who uh, to try to create. Um, a shelter for LGBT youth and their allies, their straight friends they hang with, just for them all to have a place to be. And they hang out in the Castro lot because it's a gay neighborhood, but they're not treated that well, oftentimes, by most people, or let's say a lot of people. I mean, although they're relatively safe, they don't get beaten up there, but they do. They're not so safe. And so there was an effort to open up a shelter, and there was a big struggle. People were like, oh, it's going to bring down my property values if there's a shelter in my neighborhood. And so it's a real NIMBY struggle between folks who wanted the shelter and people who didn't want the shelter. And um, I was doing the labor memoir project at the time, so young people were coming and writing about their, writing about different things, but the focus was on work and income generating activities, but you know what, they wrote about the labor of love, they wrote about, you know, they wanted to write, I'm like, I'll give it that. So they wrote, um, the only thing I didn't want to write is like tweaker journal or something, you know, I didn't really want to write about like paranoid stuff. Um, but, so one young woman wrote this, She's a trans woman, a lesbian trans woman. Let's see. I feel like that doesn't make sense. Let's see. She said, here's a quote from her when she was just talking um, in, a, in a group setting. So at that labor memoir project, one guy said, you know, the coldest day in hell is the day your sugar daddy gets tired of you. And I remember that one of the guys he had lived with for a while, he, as he was homeless, um, showed up at the meeting and, and opposed the shelter. 
He's like, wait a minute, you took me home, but you don't want me to have my own home in your neighborhood? And fully, it, it broke open into a public event at this sort of town meeting, and um, the young person punched the former sugar daddy in the face. And it was big and was in the press and stuff. But it was about, like, why is it that people don't take better care of each other fundamentally and, what, and about exploitation? Um, so this young woman who wrote this, she said, I feel like it's different for girls out on the street and it's different for trannies. And I've experienced both. And I mean, I just feel like for us it's more a predatory aspect of our environment. It's just more amplified more than it is for boys on the street. It's like extreme. It's like guys from all directions descending on us to prey on us because they see us as women, as vulnerable targets. And being homeless, that's all the excuse they need to make us like sexual slaves. Um, that's what my sugar daddy seemed to think that they, they had a right uh, to was my body, my mind, everything about me. And, and then when they were done with me, throw me out with all my shit because they didn't give a fuck and no promise was made ever that no promise that was ever made ever meant anything to them. Um, she said, you know, that I wouldn't get thrown out that way, that I could stay there for X length of time, and that we could keep these limits, because I would set limits. I mean, I'm a survivor of, like, so much violence, and I face so much more, you know, anything you could think of. So I just learned to set limits. And even trying to set limits, I found it was impossible, because without my own space, the whole room of one's own point, um, I couldn't protect myself. I would be, you know, their model house guest, always washing the dishes, cleaning up after myself, hiding in the corner, being small, being quiet. Obviously, she learned how to be a woman, huh? <laughs> yeah, and even that wasn't enough. Some of them got off on just yelling at me and fucking with my emotions, and others would want sex. And so, when she, she, while we were in the labor memoir project, she made a poster, and I, I thought she might, we were going to go to the city um, to protest, um, not to protest, but to, to speak in advocacy for opening the shelter at the zoning commission meetings, which is our sitting meetings that have to do with zoning. And she wrote this, and I was wondering if she was going to bring this sign to the meeting, but she didn't bring it, but... Okay, so I'll just let you guys read that. Yeah, I mean, you can imagine how it must feel to... There were adults that definitely wanted that shelter opened, and lots of us were there, but there were lots of adults who, and many of whom they had contact with that, that opposed it. So this was a, a little button that they made to, to support the shelter. The shelter did open happily. It was a big thing. It was open for two years, and then, guess what? Public pressure, they moved to, like, this horrible neighborhood. <laughs> It's just like a crack zone. Um, so, it, so in its place, however, the shelter building still exists, and now it's a real estate agency with like a big gay flag. So that's the sad story, and I'm sorry you had to hear it twice for you who attended my other um, talk. So I think that's it um, in terms of what I wanted to share today. Thank you.